Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Edward Alden, who is the Bernard L. Schwartz Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a former Washington Bureau Chief of the Financial Times, and his new book is The Closing of the American Border, Terrorism, Immigration, and Security Since 9-11. Ted, welcome to Berkeley. Welcome back to Berkeley. Thank you for having me on the show, Harry. I appreciate it. Where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born in Schenectady, New York, but uh, my family moved to Vancouver when, when I was quite young. My father got a job at the university there in Vancouver, and so my, my growing up years were all in, in Canada, in, uh, in Vancouver. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Well, I think they shaped it in all sorts of different ways, but, but one of the, the acknowledgments uh, that I make in my book is about the many trips I took across the border with my father uh, when I was young. Vancouver's very close to the U.S.-Canadian border, and, and my dad had a hobby that, that, that took him down into Washington State a lot. So I, I have a lot of early memories about travel across the border and dealing with the border officials in Canada and the United States. The concern at that time was primarily that you were going to try to bring back a bottle of wine or something you weren't supposed to bring back into Canada. Could you hide it under the, under the, you know, the, the tire in the, in the back seat without them finding it? Right? And was there much uh, discussion of politics and international affairs around the dinner table? Not a lot, though, though my father, you know, over the years has gotten more and more interested in, in politics. But we always, we sat down as a family at the dinner table and we, we discussed whatever was on anybody's mind since, uh, since three of the four children were boys. It was usually sports, but, uh, but we did have good, uh, good family dinner table conversations. And uh, where did you do your undergraduate and the graduate work? Um, I did my undergraduate all over the place in Canada, actually, at Carleton University in Ottawa and at the University of Victoria. And then I went out to work as a journalist for a few years. And then I went back and finished off at the University of British Columbia. And then I came down here uh, to Berkeley to do graduate work in political science. And uh, here at Berkeley, who did you work with? I worked with a number of people. I mean, the political science department, uh, primarily with Ernie Haas and with, with Ken Waltz in, in international relations. And then... And then I became very attracted to the work of a sociologist, Franz Sherman, and worked closely with him on a number of different projects. I also uh, uh, did a couple of courses with Todd Gitlin, who was, was, a, was a strong influence on me uh, during my time here at Berkeley. And, and one of your first publications, I noticed, was uh, uh, with Franz Sherman and published by the Institute of International Studies. Yeah, no, he generously uh, agreed to work with me on, on a project and, and, and pushed it, and it was, it was a tremendous learning experience. For me, uh, he is such an impressive intellect. Uh, linguist speaks you know, a dozen different foreign languages, and of course, uh, in the early part of his career, was was an expert on China. I was attracted to his work on American foreign policy, and in particular, a book called *The Logic of World Power*, which I I still think is the best single analysis out there of the origins of the Vietnam War, how and why it was the U.S. got itself embroiled in that war. And and in, in both the case of his China studies and his U.S. studies, he he really focused on the power struggles within the bureaucracy. Very much, very much. It was, it was you know, his, his analytical framework was that, that there were, were power battles inside the administrations, be it the, the Chinese government and the United States government, and that, that those affected very profoundly the policy that ended up uh, being presented to the rest of the world. And the other thing about Franz that, that, that was very influential for me was that he was not just a scholar but a journalist. 
and and during the the time I worked with him, he wrote a weekly column for Pacific News Service in San Francisco, and and really persuaded me, which I think I think I wanted to believe since I, I had come in with a journalistic background that scholarly work and journalism were complementary, that they weren't antagonistic. And and how has that worked for you? The, because it's it's a it's an important synergy. One is not yeah. the other, but but they can actually learn a lot from each other. Well, I mean, I think in my case, it, it ended up working out very well. I, I mean, I decided not to continue on the academic path. I went back to journalism, but I ended up working for the Financial Times, which I think is probably the most scholarly of the world's daily newspapers. I mean, there are many people who work for the FT who are, by any reasonable standard, experts in the issues they cover. They know as much or more about what they're writing about as, as, as the best academics, the best practitioners in the world. So that was, that was really a kind of perfect home for me, a kind of halfway house between scholarship and journalism. And now with the Council on Foreign Relations, I think very similar in a lot of ways. You have people who are, who are you know, many people who are practitioners who've worked in government. There are former journalists there. But of course, there's a, there's a scholarly bent to a lot of the work. So I, I've, I've tried to blend the two in, in, in what I've done in, in my career. And, and uh, when did you go to the Financial Times? Uh, I, I joined in, in, uh, in 1998 as part. I, I became the bureau chief in, in Toronto, in, in Canada. And then uh, about two and a half years later, at the, the tail end of the Clinton administration, I came down to Washington to work in, in the Washington Bureau and then eventually worked my way up the ranks of the Washington Bureau to become the, the bureau chief there in Washington. H- how did Washington change during this interval? I mean, w- yeah. was it really a noticeable impact? It, the noticeable, I mean, the noticeable impact for me was was not so much the change of administrations, but it was 9-11. I mean, I came in on the tail end of the Clinton administration when, you know, possibly with the exception of the effort to, to broker an Israeli-Palestinian peace deal, um, the agenda was, was really dominated by nonsense. It was, the, you know, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, mm-hmm. the impeachment proceedings, the sort of cultural war that was going on between the Republicans and, and the Democrats. And then, of course, you had the drama of the Bush-Gore election. But it quickly went back to a kind of you know, business-as-usual sense. I mean, you may remember early on in the, in, in the Bush administration, the controversy over stem cell research. And, and, and you know, that was, was, was the big issue. And, and, and so there wasn't really that much on the agenda. And then 9-11 hits. And, and it really was, for me and I think for everyone in Washington at the time, a transforming kind of experience, the the, the Washington acquired a seriousness after 9-11 that it hadn't had for a long time. But before 9-11, you had as a, 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 an interest uh, the whole problem of competitiveness yeah. and how uh, one uh, addresses those problems. Talk, yeah. talk a little about that interest, because yeah. it seems that that interest, uh, together with your crossing the border with your right, father, right, right. seems to have uh, uh, yeah. uh, helped point you in the direction of the book we're about to talk about. No, I, th- I think that's correct. I, as a journalist, beginning, you know, after, after I left Berkeley and, and, and throughout the 1990s, the major issue I wrote about was international trade. I, I covered uh, the NAFTA negotiations, the Uruguay Round negotiations, the, the fights with Japan in the early part of, of, of the Clinton administration. So I became something of an expert on international trade. And then when I joined the Financial Times, wrote more broadly about international economic issues. I mean, the Financial Times is really the, the, the newspaper of globalization. That uh, was, was and is still for the Financial Times the big story. And then so after 9-11, in a way, what I needed to figure out as a reporter was, you know, what are the implications of this new order thrown up by 9-11 
for globalization, for the, the, the linking of global economies that we, that we had seen uh, grow so dramatically in the 1990s. So that was the way in which really my, my economic interests led into, into the topic of this book. Now, uh, interestingly enough, as a prelude to 9-11, there, there was a, a document, namely the Rudman uh, Hart Commission right. report on yeah. terrorism. And, and, and really, it pointed out the contradictions within globalization. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, the, the, it, it was interesting because, because literally the first story I wrote as a result of 9-11 was about the Hart-Rudman Commission. On, on the, the morning of the attacks, I was supposed to have a day off, and I was at home and turned on the television just in time to, to, to see the second plane hit the towers. And, and, and after determining, you know, we got our kids home after you know, determining that my wife was fine, I got on the train going into Washington, D.C., because I had to get to work. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was the strangest experience. You know, there were packed trains coming out of Washington, D.C. I was literally, other than the driver, the only one on the train going into Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. And I got to the office, and, and by the time there, of course, you know, our, our whole office had mobilized, and, and there were people working on the big story of, you know, what happened, what's been hit, what are the consequences. And I thought, well, what can I usefully do? And, and I, I thought, well, I'll try to do some kind of forward-looking piece on, on whatever the policy implications of this going to be. And I immediately stumbled onto the Hart-Rudman Commission mm-hmm. because, of course, they had anticipated precisely what had happened. They had said, we're likely to experience a major terrorist attack. They'd reported in 1999. And so, so for the paper of, of September 12th, I wrote about that report and said, this is going to open a debate in the United States about whether we need a homeland security apparatus. Mm-hmm. And it really went from there. And as, as you suggest, the Hart-Rudman Commission understood the dilemma, mm-hmm. which is how do you improve security against a terrorist attack without putting sand into the gears of globalization, without, without throwing away the free mobility, both in terms of goods and in terms of people, that was, was and is one of the primary features of globalization. And, and let's uh, bore into that problem a little. Uh, uh, Amy uh, Chua has been a guest on our program, and, and in her recent book, she really points out on the one hand how uh, power... Uh, of empires over the years has has been highly dependent on the the influx or use of talented people from all parts of the world. So so in a way, one component of globalization is if you're going to stay ahead competitively, you've really got to attract the best people, the best students, and, and essentially have open borders. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I was influenced by Amy's book and also by a, a, a kind of more contemporary version of it, contemporary in the sense that she's, she's written a history of empires, contemporary version by Richard Florida, who wrote a book called The Rise of the Creative Class. And it was the same argument. It, the argument is that the economies that flourish are the ones that are best at attracting, integrating, making maximum use of the world's most talented people. And, and Amy argues in, in that book that this was, was true, even though you might not have thought it for the Roman Empire and for, for other great empires in history, and it's certainly been the case for, for the United States. Uh, the danger, she points out, is that openness sometimes creates the seeds of, it, of its own destruction, that, that there can be negative consequences from openness that cause countries to turn their back to close down. And, and one of my motivations for writing the book was the fear that after 9-11, 
the United States had begun to implement measures that in a way were going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg, this, this openness, this, this, this magnet for talent that the U.S. has been for so many years. And you, you actually, uh, in your own research, cite uh, a lot of examples of how, in a way, we interdependent we are. To read you back some of them, as early as 1990, a third of Silicon Valley scientific and engineering workforce was made up of immigrants, primarily from China and India. By 1998, there were nearly 3,000 firms in the region, led by a Chinese or Indian chief executive, accounting for more than $6.8 billion in sales and 58,000 in jobs, and more than half of the PhDs in engineering and science are from foreign countries. So it's a real, uh, it's a real connection, uh, a flow of, 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 of uh, human resources that, that really makes our vitality as the leading global power uh, a real. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's absolutely no yeah. question about it. And there's been, been recent research looking at, at patents as an indicator of innovation. And, and immigrants uh, file for receive patents at, at a much higher rate than American citizens. And, and, and the reason is not, not that they're smarter or more entrepreneurial necessarily, but that we are attracting a lot of foreign scientists, engineers, the sort of people who are likely to, to file patents. They come, they study at U.S. universities, they remain here, they become part of companies, they start their own companies. And it's absolutely been an engine of American innovation. And, and, and innovation has really been at the heart of American economic leadership. I mean, getting back to the competitiveness themes, if you had to point to a single factor that accounts for the, the American ability to stay at the top decade after decade after decade, it's our capacity for innovation. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you touched on the other side of this, which in, in talking about Amy, namely the, the whole, uh, 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 well, it's a, it's a historical experience, but it's very much an American experience where you close down the borders. In other words, you, you have periods of openness uh, uh, followed by clamps downs because of security, because of uh, nativism because of nationalism. Talk yes. a little about that in the history of the U.S. because b- even before 9-11, yes. that has been our story. Yeah, there have been periods, and, and, and my analysis of it is, is a, a little bit different than, than, than a lot of the histories. I mean, a lot of the histories look at, 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 at economics as driving this, that, that the United States opens in times of economic prosperity and closes at times of economic recession. And, and if that's correct, we may well be on the cusp of an even more serious closure. But when I went back and, and I looked at that history, it seemed to me that the missing component in a lot of the analysis was that there, there was a security fear as well. I mean, the big closing that we're all familiar with took place after the First World War and really preceded the Depression of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. It, of course, became worse at that time because there weren't jobs here for for people to come to in all countries in the world closed down. But it really, a lot of the, the post-World War I closing resulted from, from the fear of importing European conflicts. You know, we had watched the conflagration, we had participated in it in Europe, and, and many people thought, well, you know, we don't want to import that into the United States. And that was a lot of the impetus for, for that closure. And I think what we saw post-9-11 was it was, again, a, a similar sort of thing. And, and, and the, the closing we've seen is, is nothing uh, compared to what we saw after the First World War, but it, it was the same fear. And, and the fear is that while openness brings many benefits, it attracts talented people, it allows you to bring in imports of goods at higher quality, lower price, openness also allows things that we don't want 
to come in. I mean, drug smuggling, uh, international criminals, and as we found out with 9-11, terrorists. And so I think it has been true in a number of points in American history that, 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 that security fears have really driven this, this closing down as much or more than economic concerns. In the, in the period before 9-11, you, you do uh, an interesting account of the differences in California uh, toward immigration policy right. now uh, versus the policies of Texas. And, yeah. and, and I think it's worth talking about this because uh, President uh, uh, Bush, uh, President George W. Bush, had been governor of Texas. And uh, so he had a very uh, interesting take pre-9-11 to the border. So compare that, his position, with that, say, of Governor Wilson here in California and what explains the differences. Well, one of the, one of the events that I, that I recount in, in my book was, a, was a, um, a clash between Governor Bush, who was then governor of Texas, and Governor Wilson, at the 1996 uh, Republican Governors Association Convention, the first one that, that Bush had, had attended. And at the time, Wilson was really a star in Republican ranks, was seen as a, a potential uh, presidential contender. And his star was rising largely on the immigration issue, uh, Prop 187, the English-only initiatives. And, and California, of course, more than really any other state, had experienced uh, some of the, the economic cultural conflicts that come with high levels of immigration, particularly high levels of, of illegal immigration. Texas, intriguingly, had our, always had a slightly different take on it. Um, I think, you know, partly because Texas has, has very low levels of social services. You know, one of the arguments about illegal immigration is, is, is uh, people come in and, and you have to provide schools for them, you have to provide hospital medical services. This is a huge cost for states. In Texas, uh, the level of social services are fairly low and have always been fairly low. And so in Texas, you had a, a business community which was very supportive of immigration from Mexico in whatever capacity, be it legal uh, temporary worker programs or, or be it unauthorized migration. And, and, and really, Bush had a different take on this issue when he became president. He, he didn't like illegal immigration, but he thought that finding a path to regularize immigration flows from Mexico needed to be a crucial priority for his administration. So, so he really saw the Wilson elements of the party as, as destructive for the Republican Party. He thought the future of the Republican Party required bringing Hispanics and Hispanic voters into the Republican Party and thought Wilson and the policies Wilson was advocating were working against that, that long-term interest. It's, it's this a, a very intriguing point because uh, uh, the evolution of the Republican Party is, 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 is conflicted, on the one hand, tapping American nationalism, American exceptionalism, uh, nativism, on the one hand, uh, keeping the other out, so to speak, and on the other hand, uh, uh, powerful elements of the business community, uh, both in agriculture and uh, well, especially in agriculture, that want open borders so that the immigrants uh, can come in. And so the, 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 there's a history of a legislative struggle here yes. that, that's really fascinating. And, in fact, what had happened was that in making uh, it impossible, you describe, the, for Mexicans to go back to Mexico after working here at, for intervals during a year, uh, there was a, a clampdown which essentially froze that cross-border migration, which increased the population in the country. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you've, you've, you've described it very well. Yeah. There, there's, there's an internal struggle that's long been there in the Republican Party against, you know, the, essentially the business elements of the party, agriculture, multinational business, you know, hotels, restaurants, other places that employ a, a lot of, of lower-skilled labor versus the more kind of cultural nativist elements of the party. And Bush was firmly on, in the pro-business wing of the, of the Republican Party on that issue. And, and, you know, as you describe in the, in the 90s, we had seen the, the nativist elements really acquire much more of a voice, not only in the Republican Party, but, but the Democrats really had responded to that. The pressure coming from the border states like California had already led to significant increases in enforcement at the southern border during the 1990s. And one of the unfortunate consequences of that was, was it exacerbated the problem of illegal migrants settling in the United States. I mean, it used to be that there was a fairly easy cross-border flow. People would come and work for part of the year and go back. Well, as you begin to set up barriers at the border, as you raise the cost, if people have to hire smugglers to get them across, when they come into the United States, they're going to stay. And if they decide to stay, they're going to bring their families over, which means you have not just the, 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 the men, but the women and the children coming over. And then once they've decided to do that, they may well not stay in California or Arizona or Texas. They will fan out into the country to where the work opportunities exist. And so we've seen immigration pressures in parts of the country, Iowa, North Carolina, Alabama, places where we've never seen them before. 9-11, the attack comes and uh, uh, you, you focus on many individuals, and we'll talk about some, but, but the key figures here are Bush, and we've laid out a vision that he had prior to 9-11. Yeah. Uh, and then, but the other key players become uh, Secretary Ridge, who ultimately becomes Secretary of Homeland right. Security, yeah. but at first is an advisor in the White House, and the Attorney General, uh, John uh, Ashcroft. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, before we get into the specific battles, one has a sense that there are certain characteristics that these people were very vulnerable after 9-11 and were really looking for handles to deal with the problem and in, some might say to cover the embarrassment of what they let happen. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I would, I would be a little more charitable in the sense that, that I think, you know, everybody that I interviewed who was, was in the government at that time believed that 9-11 was not going to be a one-off, that there were going to be follow-on attacks and that, in fact, there might already be terrorist cells in place in the United States with plans to carry out follow-on attacks. So I think there was a kind of desperation. There was a feeling that, that we'd been hit, we'd missed the signals that we were going to be hit, the damage was catastrophic, and we had no idea of knowing whether we might be hit again and, and no sense of how to go about looking for the people who we were worried might hit us again. So, so I think the, the motivation wasn't so much embarrassment, it was desperation. Mm -hmm. It was this feeling that, 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 that the threat was, was real and imminent and we had no idea what to do about it. So help us understand what the response was and, and how uh, particular sets of problems were, uh, were dealt with. And, and I think uh, one has to uh, to start with the Justice Department in yes. a way because you're you're really saying that Ashcroft uh, suddenly realized that the only tools he had to deal with the problem came out of the immigration and customs side. Well, I mean, you look at it this from their perspective. Okay, they in the Justice Department believed that another attack 
was almost certainly going to come. And, and there were two ways it might happen. Either there were terrorist cells that were already in the United States. They had come here, as did the 19 hijackers, and they were waiting. Or else there were people who were going to come from abroad. I mean, all 19 of the hijackers came from abroad, came to the United States on visas. They weren't people who had been living here for long periods of time. And so how do you try to deal with this? Well, I mean, if you had an FBI that had strong connections in the Arab and Muslim communities around the country, maybe you could find informers, maybe you'd have some way of, of gathering information that was useful. But the FBI didn't have, have those contacts. And so domestically, the only tool they could think of was, well, like the hijackers, they're likely to be here on temporary visas of some sort or another. So we're going to go out and we're going to start arresting people, uh, asking questions if, if, if people give any indication that someone down the street might have some connection to the terrorist attack. We're going to hold these people. We're going to find immigration violations. And there often were. I mean, there were a lot of people. There still are a lot of people living in the United States out of status. And, and, and that's an extremely powerful tool. If you find someone with even a minor immigration violation, uh, you can hold them for long periods of time. There are some due process limitations, but as we discovered after 9-11, it was easy to steamroller over those. So they ended up arresting a lot of people, holding them for long periods of time after 9-11. And then at the borders, they began to set up a, a series of new screening mechanisms and other hurdles to try to keep out uh, potential terrorists who might be trying to come into the country after 9-11. So immigration law was central to both of those responses, both of those way of holding people you had a concern about domestically and as a way of keeping people out that you had reason to be concerned about internationally. So uh, at the Canadian border, I mean, the, you, you cite the figures, the, the traffic, the automobile industry and so on, uh, the truck traffic is unbelievable. And, oh, yeah. and, and it, so in the first days, you, you essentially get a clamp down in that traffic. Yeah, I mean, the immediate response right after 9-11 was, was really literally to, to close, well, not quite literally, I'm going to look at it, but a virtual closure of the borders. That, that what, what happened at the Canadian and Mexican borders, which had never happened before, was they went to what was called a level one alert, which meant that every vehicle, every individual crossing the border was subject to maximum detailed inspection. You, know, you went through every inch of the car to make sure there wasn't something in, in, the, in that car. And, and this, you know, this was, was indiscriminate. So you, know, you could have a trucker who was moving auto parts across the border and ran that route two times a day, every day for the last 10 years. He was subject to the same level of scrutiny as someone you'd never seen before. And the result was really to shut down the economic system that operated across that border. And, and this was, was most apparent in the auto industry because the, the auto industry on both sides of the border is fully integrated. You have cars that are assembled in the United States uh, with parts that come in from Canada and vice versa. And it's a real-time system. You know, the parts leave the factory, they've got 10 hours to make it into the United States to the assembly line, and if they don't make it, then the assembly line shuts down. And that's what we saw happen in the aftermath of 9-11 because of the, the border closure and the delays that that caused. Now, uh, there, there's a, a, throughout the book, a, a very interesting theme, and, and this takes us back to what we were just talking about. There is a sense that uh, America was into a mode of saying globalization is great. Yeah. And so you had in place pluses and minuses in the bureaucracy uh, for, for responding to this crisis. And, and, on, and let's, let's talk about that uh, because I think it's very important. So the, 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 the hijackers on the 9-11 flight were identified First, not by the FBI, but I guess it was the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Customs, service. actually. The customs it was service. Customs. Yeah. And, and tell us how that came about, because yeah. within two hours, they knew uh, 
uh, who the hijackers were. Yeah, this was a fascinating story and something that I, that I think should have been part of the 9-11 Commission report, but, but they overlooked. Um, this was very interesting because customs of all the organizations in the United States government had been the most sophisticated at trying to deal with the negative consequences of globalization. And this was particularly the case for drug smuggling. You know, open borders make it easy for drug smugglers. And so customs had tried to develop systems to help it identify drug smugglers. People coming in on airplanes who would be carrying drugs on their person may have in fact swallowed uh, drugs. And, and how do you identify those people? Well, you know, one possibility is everybody coming off the plane from Colombia or from Mexico or from countries that are sources of drugs, uh, you're just going to inspect them all. You'll put them all into secondary inspection and, and, and you'll do searches on everyone. Well, if you do that, you're going to slow down the traffic tremendously. People will complain to Congress. Congress will get upset. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't possible to have free movement and do that. So customs had developed specialized systems to try to say, who is it that we need to be worried about on, on these planes. And they had received voluntary agreements from the U.S. airlines uh, in which the airlines would share data on incoming passengers so that customs would know, you know, was this ticket purchased with cash, which was always a red flag? Was there a credit card that we know might be connected to the drug cartels? Was it purchased in places that we know are used by the drug cartels? Um, does this passenger fit profiles of, of drug smugglers. So they could try to narrow the number of searches. And, and what happened was it was quite effective. They actually reduced the number of people who were pulled into secondary inspection by about a quarter, but the, but the drug seizures went up. So this is a long way of answering your question, and mm -hmm. I apologize. But, but one of the interesting things about that passenger information data was that the airlines had no way to segregate it. So information on domestic passengers, information on international passengers were part of the same database. And customs had access to both. This wasn't known at the time. I mm -hmm. think the ACLU and others would have had things to say about it had they known it. But the result was that when 9-11 hit, Customs had immediate access to the passenger lists and that same kind of data, you know, credit card purchases, where the ticket was purchased, for all of the passengers on the four flights. Um, there were two, two of the 19 hijackers, and, and we can get back to this if you want, but two of the 19 hijackers had been identified already by the CIA as al-Qaeda operatives. So those names flashed up immediately when Customs did the search. And they were able, in various ways, to link those passengers, some by credit card and other information, some by the fact they just sat beside each other, to, to the others. And, and, and within two hours, they went to the FBI and they said, we think there were 19 hijackers. We think these are the guys. And they were right. Mm -hmm. and, and the other side of this, uh, because th there were uh, mechanisms in play to make it easier than one could believe to get into the country. And here we have the case of a different bureaucracy in a different part of the government, namely the visa right. service, yeah. uh, uh, having moved to the notion of, well, let's make it easy as possible yeah. for everybody. Let's make it even more easy for Saudis coming yeah. into the country. And yeah. let's make it so that the travel agents uh, issue the visas when Saudis buy tickets. Right. Talk about that because yeah. that was the dark side. Oh, you know no what? question. No question. Yeah. I mean, the attitude in the 1990s was people coming to the United States is a good thing for the United States. We want them to come here. We want them to be tourists. We want them to spend money. We want them to go to American universities. We want them to get treatment in American hospitals. All of this is a good thing for us. And, and the restrictions were really all economic ones. We want to know that the people who come here 
have enough money to come here, return home, that they're not intending to come here and overstay their visas and live and work in the United States, though an awful lot did anyway. But the Saudis were considered virtually no risk. I mean, you know, the records were clear. Saudis came to the United States, they spent a lot of money, they went to the beaches, they partied, and they went home. And so um, for, the, for the visa officers in, in Saudi Arabia, the, the, the scrutiny of Saudi visa applicants was, was extremely low. There were, there were some who were attuned to the, the concern over terrorism, but not very many. And so the result was we did everything we could to expedite uh, Saudis coming to the United States, including the scheme involving travel agents, which, which, you know, there's been a lot of confusion about it. The travel agents didn't grant the visas, but it was just it was a way to expedite it. Saudis could, could give all their information to the travel agents. The travel agents would pass it over to the U.S. Embassy. The U.S. Embassy would stamp the passports, get it back to the travel agents, and they'd be on their way. And, of course, a uh, law, a law uh, was it, how, how many were Saudis of the, the terrorists? I think it was uh, seven, fi- fi- 15, 15. I think it's 15, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, now, let's go back to Ashcroft, because what Ashcroft discovers is that if he's going to be able to act, that immigration has uh, courts, basically, that had yeah. become routine. Namely, right. they find somebody who had committed a violation, they bring him into court, an order is issued for him to leave, but often they didn't leave. Right, right. And, and Ashcroft saw this as a tool where he could act very quickly. That, that's very important. Talk about that. Well, the, the, they, they took a, a set of lessons away from a particular incident that occurred prior to 9-11. On the night of September 10th, close to midnight, Zia Jara, who was the pilot of the United flight that was, was crashed in Pennsylvania when the passengers stormed the cockpit. The, the terrorist pilot. The terrorist pilot, yeah, the terrorist pilot. Zia Jara was pulled over uh, driving 95 miles an hour on Highway 95, which, which runs up and down the East Coast. He was, he was pulled over in Maryland, just south of the Delaware border, heading north for, for New York. And... Um, the, the, the policeman pulled him over, ran the usual wants and warrants. There was nothing in the database, so he wrote a ticket for $270, gave it to Jarrett. Jarrett went on his way, and the next day, of course, he, he got on the plane and, and was part of the hijacking of that flight. It turns out that at the time, Ziajara was living in the United States illegally. He'd overstayed a visa and actually had violated the terms of his student visa. And it wasn't just Jarrett. A number of the hijackers, including all of the pilots, at some point in time had been out of status in the United States. So Ashcroft and his people looked at this, and they said... If we could begin enforcing our immigration laws more aggressively, you know, say that local cop, when he ran the wanton warrant, the information had flashed up, Ziajara has overstayed his visa. He's here illegally. The hope was you would pull him into custody and perhaps 9-11 never would have happened. So they saw immigration enforcement as being a vital counterterrorism tool, that if we just enforce our immigration laws aggressively across the board, uh, perhaps we'll catch the next 11 hijacker or at least make it a lot harder uh, for them to organize and carry out another attack. And, but these extreme measures, at one level, th- there's just a lot of zero results, basically, because in, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the people they detained, who they were looking for terrorists without any information, mm-hmm. they found nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so, so it is often the case that you're, you're looking for a needle in a haystack yeah. with the hope that that one needle will then prick the, the, the bubble uh, uh, of, of the terrorist plan. Yeah, no, it's, an, it's a very good way to define it. I mean, the problem with immigration enforcement as a counterterrorism tool is that immigration is a huge world. I mean, there are millions of people who come here every year on, on visas. There are, you know, by best counts, there's something like 12 million people living in the country without papers, illegal immigrants living in this country. The, the volume of travel is extraordinary. 
And, and the notion that somehow just by being aggressive across the board in enforcement of that set of laws, you're going to catch these handful of people that you're worried about is, is a long shot. And in fact, that was what the experience showed, that aggressive immigration enforcement identified a lot of illegal immigrants. There were a lot of people were and still are being deported, but it didn't help to identify hijackers. And, and, and a lot of what I write about in my book is, is it wasn't just illegal immigrants. Sadly, there were a lot of people who were here legally, who were trying to come here legally, whose lives were really turned upside down by getting caught on the wrong side of this immigration enforcement campaign, even though they had no connection to terrorism at all. You make a dichotomy in, in you, between the cops and the technocrats. We'll talk yeah. about the technocrats in the, min, uh, in the minute, but let's g give us a summary statement of the cops and, and – mm. Uh, Ashcroft is is the key cop, yeah. both in being head of the Justice Department, but also in in what he sought to do and what he felt he had to do in in this period of vulnerability. Yeah, well, I mean, Ashcroft talked. I mean, the, the, the cops was interesting how they called themselves. So I, I, I it was a self definition. The technocrats, I, mm -hmm. I I made up myself. But 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 Ashcroft described what what he called a, a spit on the sidewalk strategy, which he attributed. To, to Robert Kennedy when, when Kennedy said, we're going to go after organized crime, and if they spit on the sidewalk, we're going to pull them in and charge them with that. Well, he saw immigration law as his equivalent of a spit on the sidewalk strategy. There's a, a, a DHS official who put it to me very nicely. He said, immigration law is like tax law. You're guilty until proven innocent. And so it was a, a powerful tool for Ashcroft. If there were people out there that they had any reason to be concerned about, they could pull them in, charge them with some minor immigration violation, and hold them for a long time for questioning. And so they saw that as the most powerful law enforcement tool they had, and they used it to the hilt. Uh, now, tell us about the technocrats and about Ridge, because yeah. Ridge had been a governor uh, of a border state, and he was brought in as a, in the White House first for Homeland Security, yeah. and then the first head of the department. Yeah, Ridge really came at this problem from a different perspective. I mean, for Ashcroft, there was, was one issue. The issue was how to prevent another terrorist attack. And if there were unfortunate consequences of those enforcement efforts, he didn't really care about it all that much. That wasn't his job. His job was to prevent another terrorist attack and to use whatever tools he had. Ridge looked at the problem differently. Ridge had been governor of Pennsylvania, um, thought of himself as a border state governor. He grew up in Erie, which is right on, on the shores of Lake Ontario, um, had a lot of interaction with the Canadians thought very much about economics, as all governors do. Governors spend a lot of time trying to attract business to their state, trying to attract investment. And so he came into the job with very, a very similar perspective to that that was laid out in the Hart-Rudman Commission, which is the challenge here was to tighten the borders to secure ourselves against terrorists, but to do so in a way that it didn't interfere with the free flow of goods and the free flow of people. So, so he always looked at his job, both at the White House and in Department of Homeland Security, as twofold. Improve security, prevent another terrorist attack, but do it in a way that preserves an open economy. Mm -hmm. And, and in, in this context, the, the, the central idea is what you call risk management and smart borders. Right. Tell us what those are. Well, there's sort of two elements to it. Risk management means you have to think about the consequences of the measures you're putting in place. There's no perfect defense against terrorism, right? I mean, there's an unlimited number of potential targets, every shopping mall, every subway. You can't prevent them from hitting you everywhere. And so you have to think, 
well, what are the measures that we can put in place that give us the biggest bang for the buck, that provide increased security, but with minimal disruption to our daily lives? And so that's the basic concept of risk management. Um, the, the idea of smart borders was to sort of extend that concept to the borders. So what you want to do is you want at the borders to be as targeted as you possibly can, to spend your time inspecting and scrutinizing those people and those shipments of goods that you have some reason to be worried about, much along the model of what customs had done with drug smuggling. I mean, to use just one example, what they've tried to do at the northern border, and it hasn't happened as rapidly as it should, but is create what they call these nexus lanes, which are special lanes where if you're a commercial driver or you're a frequent crosser, you can go to the U.S. government and say, this is who I am, this is all my information, you know, run background checks on me, and then when you're satisfied that I'm a good person, then I get to drive through this special lane where I don't have to wait in the long lines at the border. That's, that's smart borders. That's separating out the people you don't need to be concerned about so that the, the people and shipments of goods that you need to focus on are, are much smaller uh, and, and your likelihood of, of identifying things of concern goes up. Uh, in, the, in the story of these struggles, why, uh, who, who prevailed, I guess is the question, but also... Why didn't Ridge, uh, did Ridge succeed or did he not and why, do you think? I think early on Ashcroft clearly prevailed and, and, and over some very strong opposition, uh, not only from Ridge and the people around Ridge, but from, from people within the Justice Department, including the head of the Immigration and Naturalization Service at the time, Jim Ziegler, who objected vociferously to the way in which Ashcroft wanted to use immigration law for these broad roundups and, and for restricting people coming into the country. But Ashcroft prevailed because nobody else had an immediate solution. The, the smart borders idea was a good idea, but the tools weren't immediately there. I mean, it required creating databases, gathering information that really didn't exist immediately after 9-11. Some of the mechanisms had been put in place previously, but they never really come to fruition. Whereas Ashcroft had an immediate answer. I've got a set of tools. I can use them aggressively. And so really for the first two years after 9-11, Ashcroft won almost every battle with the White House, with the State Department, and, and with detractors within his own Justice Department. In a way, you can say that the national agenda became fear, and, yes. it, and that in turn was linked with the politics of the Republican Party and, and looking forward to the next election. Did, 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 did that national vision and agenda make uh, 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 Ridge's efforts more difficult, even to the point of losing out? Yeah, I think over, I mean, over time it became a bigger issue. I think, you know, immediately sort of 2001, 2002, I don't think politics was uppermost on anybody's mind, even within the White House. But as the midterm election approached, it became clear to, to people in the White House, to, to political operatives, that the war on terrorism was a very good issue for the president. And I talked to a lot of people in Homeland Security who say they were constantly under pressure from the White House to do dramatic things, to run exercises, to make announcements that constantly emphasized to the public the threat of another terrorist attack, that this was something that was good politically for the president. And so in a way, this issue began to spin out of control, you know, and we talked earlier about the president's desire to maintain open borders, to do agreements with Mexico to regularize the flow. Over time, this began to spin out of control because his party, partly for political reasons, began to emphasize more and more 
the threat that, oh, my God, terrorists are going to cross the borders, come into the United States and carry out another attack. And, and it, it, this, this political agenda, which is emerging over time, mm-hmm. was reflected in the fact that even after Homeland Security was uh, uh, established as a cabinet-level department, there remained an office of Homeland Security in the White House uh, that Ridge had to deal with. Yeah, I think, I mean, that wasn't, I, I don't think that was entirely a, a political thing. I mean, the people that staffed the Office of Homeland Security were, were by and large professionals of one sort or another. It was headed for a time by Richard Falkenrath, who now runs Homeland Security for the, for the New York City Police Department. But it created a struggle. Um, DHS was, was, was kind of ill-formulated from the outset. I mean, Ridge's original idea, which I, which I report on in the book, was that actually there should just be a merger of the border agencies. I mean, he, he originally was not a supporter of creating a big Department of Homeland Security. That came as a result of pressure from Congress and the feeling in the White House that they'd better get with the program or it was going to be forced down their throat. But nobody ever figured out what DHS was supposed to do. Some people thought it was supposed to coordinate government-wide efforts on Homeland Security. But the fact that an Office of Homeland Security remained in the White House meant that you had a White House agency that also saw itself as the coordinator. So there was, there was a, a, a structural conflict built into the creation of Department of Homeland Security, which meant the DHS was not only fighting with justice and fighting with state, but it was often fighting with the White House. And, and you point out that Homeland Security never had a, uh, a planning office under no. Ridge and that that may have been a, a great mistake. Yeah, I, every, I mean, it, it, as, as, as it, was, it was put in, a, in, a, in an article I, I, I quoted, actually, um, a planning office is bureaucracy 101. You need some place where you're thinking about the department's long-term goals, its strategic vision, and that was never part of the initial formulation. There is one now in DHS. It was implemented under Chertoff. The only thing that kind of looked like a planning office was in the portion of DHS dealing with border and transportation security. And I think it's not a surprise that that part of the operation actually was much more effective, say, than the the disaster recovery part, as we saw the disaster in in, in uh, uh, the mismanagement of Hurricane Katrina and, and the collapse of FEMA. I think you can attribute some of that to the lack of of any sort of policy vision within the department as a whole. Going back to to what you learned from Franz Sherman, I, I, it would seem that the fragmentation of the government, the the uh, the separation of powers. Uh, the whole thing that at one level has made America a very vital place and a, and a great democracy in a situation like this uh, becomes a, a monster, yeah. basically. Uh, you point out that uh, once Homeland Security was established and all these agencies were put under its umbrella, that it, it had an, an amazing reporting uh, responsibility to the Congress. Tell us uh, about that. Oh, it was absurd. There were, you know, there were more than 80 committees that the, the Department of Homeland Security had to report to in Congress. They spent most of their first year writing reports to Congress about what they hadn't done since they hadn't had enough time to, to do anything. But, I mean, the larger issue of bureaucratic politics, the, the problem was that, that, you know, even though the White House was putting out papers talking about a national strategy, talking about the border of the future and, and the smart border, what was happening was incoherent. You had some of these smart border measures being developed, but alongside it you had this whole aggressive immigration enforcement campaign. You had parts of the government working very much at cross-purposes. And, and what we saw as a result was in 2002, 2003, 2004, there were tremendous restrictions on people trying to come to the United States. I mean, the number of visas granted 
for people to travel here fell from close to 8 million to fewer than 5 million in two years. And so you had sort of different parts of the government all kind of falling over each other to try to put in place new border security measures without thinking about, well, what are the consequences of this going to be in the real world? I mean, what is the effect going to be on all the people we want to come to this country and that we have relied on? And so the result was really a kind of traffic wreck that we saw take place in 2003, 2004, when, as I write, an awful lot of people, people we wanted, couldn't get into this country. Mm -hmm. And and in a way, there were really very great costs to our soft power. Because in addition to this inflow of people at at all levels, students, uh, prominent uh, 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 businessmen, whoever, that the the economic consequences of that, there is also a consequence in the way we're perceived in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think there were economic and diplomatic consequences. The economic consequences you refer to, I mean, for the first time uh, since the end of the Second World War, we actually saw a decline in the number of foreign graduate students coming to the United States. They began to go elsewhere, and the the figures are very clear, even though we've fortunately seen a bit of a recovery in, in the last year or so. I talked to an endless number of business leaders who said, you know, we can't get visas for people who want to come in and buy our products. We can't get visas for employees. Um, a lot of companies began to set up operations abroad because they couldn't get the, the people that they wanted here. So we paid an economic price there. In a way, the diplomatic price, I think, was almost bigger. One of the, the easiest interviews for me to arrange and, and the most interesting was, was with Secretary of State Colin Powell, because he said he dealt with this constantly. Every meeting he had with foreign leaders, he would get complaints about the way their people were being treated when they tried to come to the United States. I mean, both you know, senior diplomatic officials he told me a story about, about the daughter of a member of the Thai royal family who came here on a student visa, arrived three days before she was supposed to under the terms of the visa, got slapped in handcuffs, sent on a plane back to Thailand, told she couldn't come, would have to reapply for a student visa. There was huge diplomatic fallout from this. And, and I think it was broader than just the leadership. You know, we hear a lot about the consequences of Iraq and, and the torture policy in Guantanamo, all, all of which I think was very real. But most people, of course, didn't experience that directly. Mm-hmm. But almost everybody, at least in the, in the upper levels of, 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 of a lot of countries around the world, tried to come to the United States, have family members who've tried to come to the United States, they have friends who've tried to come to the United States. And to the extent that they were mistreated at our borders, those are stories that have reverberated across the world. And the message went out. The United States doesn't want you anymore. And, and that was a very, very costly message for us. You're, you're touching on an important point, which is the, the link between political leadership, uh, lack of vision and so on, and then the actual implementation by bureaucracy yeah. so, so that you, you can have a sense that our security requires we uh, do certain things. Yeah. But at the border, uh, it, it is implemented by somebody who may be having a bad day and who may not like important people, uh, who may be doing the right things in the right way, but there's always a rotten apple. That, that's very important. Well, I think that's part of it, but I also think you, know, you, you, have, to, you have to think when, you, when you're talking about bureaucracies, what is the core mission? Every bureaucracy, to some extent, is defined by its core mission. And if you think about the, the border functions, be they the, the consular officers abroad or the, the customs and immigration officials who meet you at the airport or at the land borders, throughout the 1990s, the core mission had been facilitate travel. We want people to come here. And in fact, if you do too much to make it hard for people to come here, you may hear about it. You know, somebody might call their congressman and their congressman might call your boss and you might get a call. Why are you making it so difficult for people to come here? After 9-11, that mission changed completely. The mission became 
keeping terrorists out of the United States. And so nobody, no consular officer, no border official was going to get slapped on the wrist for saying no. But if they said yes to the wrong guy, it might cost them their career. So the bureaucratic mission really changed overnight, and that had a profound effect on all of the frontline people who are, you know, the face, in, in, a, in a sense, the face of the United States government to much of the world. Mm-hmm. Let's talk now about your conclusions, because uh, you identify three. Walk mm-hmm. us through them. Um, there, are, there are both uh, sort of specific conclusions and broader ones. I think the most important broad conclusion I draw is that we have to think about immigration policy and counterterrorism separately. I mean, there are times when immigration law can be quite useful. You know, if you identify uh, somebody who you think has terrorist connections, you don't have a criminal case, you want to deport them, maybe you can find an immigration law violation and do that. But the notion that simply by tough enforcement of immigration law, you're going to find and deter terrorists, I think has, has just been proven not to be the case. You know, what you find are you find illegal migrants, and there may be good reasons to do that. But I really think we need to separate the, the discussion of these two issues, and, and, and I hope we do that going forward. And, I, and I, see, I see them conflated all the time. I mean, Secretary Chertoff talks about the construction of the fence on the border with Mexico as, as a counterterrorism national security measure, mm-hmm. and that's just ridiculous. We can't point to a single case of, of terrorists using the southern border as an entry point. And if so, the fence probably wouldn't deter them. So that would be my biggest conclusion. Uh, secondly, I just think we need to be far more proactive about attracting the people here we want to attract. There are still measures in place, post-9-11 measures, that really humiliate a lot of people who come, particularly from Arab and Muslim countries. And those numbers have not recovered. The number of visas from places like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and others are still way down from the pre-9-11 mm-hmm. levels. We need to think about how we can attract the people we want from those countries and elsewhere back, not just worry about the enforcement problem, but worry about the attraction problem as well. So those are, those are really the heart of, of my conclusions. Uh, a name, as I think back about the book that I'm not sure occurred in your book, was yeah. Vice President Cheney. Yeah. I mean, and so, and, and, and what is interesting is, you know, he's been identified with the 1% solution right. uh, by Ron Susskind, meaning yeah. that if there was a 1% chance of something yeah. happening, then you came down right, hard right. to prevent it from yeah. happening. Uh, so this, I think, non-mention of Cheney and, the, and then the whole failure to adopt uh, uh, risk management is, right. is something that's important because it, with, even though he, he doesn't seem to be hovering all over this, yeah. there, is a, there is an inability to understand that concept. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I do think actually that the department has over time begun to implement a number of these risk management measures. I think we're much better off now than we were in the immediate aftermath. So I think there has been been some real progress. Cheney, you're right, is not a leading character in my book. I think, you know, from everyone I talked to, his staff just wasn't that actively involved on this set of issues. But the philosophy that he brought, this notion that the mission was to do everything in our power to prevent another terrorist attack and consequences be damned, was absolutely the philosophy that we saw in this whole set of issues as well. So I think, in a way, he hovers over everything that the Bush administration did, this issue included, even though his staff wasn't as actively involved day-to-day as, say, they were on Guantanamo or on interrogation policy or, or some of the other issues we, we've heard about. And, and, and I think we want to emphasize the point that what you're really saying is that the, the uh, immigration debate, because there was a debate going on and hopefully there was going to be reform, bipartisan reform of all the problems related to immigration, that terrorism 
the counterterrorism fight became a tool in that debate, which corrupted both. Yeah, and I, I think it hijacked the possibility of doing immigration reform. I think, you know, the, the specter hanging over all of the discussions in 2006, 2007 was, you know, we have to have perfect border security. And it was used. I mean, I mean terrorism was used by those who really wanted to crack down on the illegal immigrants. It was used by those people as a tool. It was a powerful argument. You know, it's one thing to say, well, they're overcrowding the schools and the hospitals. It's another to say, well, you know, an illegal migrant might carry out a terrorist attack. So there were people who had an interest in conflating the two. What, what now are we left with with regard to your understanding and interest in this whole uh, uh, competitive challenge? Because uh, we're, your book was written, I believe, before the, the, the recent financial crisis That's that correct. we're still in. Yeah. So the question become: how does this play out and what will be its impact on the relative decline in the world of the United States, which may be occurring for other reasons. I mean, this is, you know, this is very much a kind of long-term issue as opposed to a short-term issue. I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, immigration or immigration policy is going to be the way we get out of the current economic recession. And, and in fact, I think we'll see the immigrant numbers drop because the jobs just aren't going to be here. But longer term, the United States has put itself in a difficult position. For many, many years, we had this game to ourselves. I mean, if you were a talented, ambitious person, person who wanted to travel abroad to further yourself, you were going to come to the United States. You know, we have the world's best universities, best research facilities, most dynamic companies, and a very open policy that was very friendly and attractive to these people. And they came to the United States in great numbers. What happened after 9-11 is a lot of the rest of the world's caught on to this. I mean, the British, the Canadians, the Australians, the Germans, even the Japanese are, are implementing many measures to try to attract foreign students. They're making immigration procedures easier for these people. They're making it easier for them to find work afterwards. We are now in an, and, 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 and you know, countries like China and India, of course, are trying to keep these people. They're, they're implementing policies domestically to attract them, them back home. So we are now in a competition for the world's talent such as we, we haven't faced in the post-war period. And, and I think that's going to be a difficult one for the United States. There are many, we have many advantages. There, there, you know, people still want to come here. We still have the world's best universities. There are a lot of ways in which we can win this competition. But we're in a fight uh, on the competitiveness front that didn't exist before 9-11. Ted, on, on that note, uh, uh, which uh, I guess there's an element of hope in it, but also uh, discouragement, uh, uh, let me show your book again, The Closing of the American Border. And uh, I want to thank you very much for coming on our program and coming back to Berkeley. Thank you for your time here. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.